Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, December the 6th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linhan. Before we start today, I just wanted to mention that next Tuesday evening, we're going to be recording a podcast in front of a live audience at the Institute for International and European Affairs Young Professionals Network. Joining me to discuss the next European Council meeting, where crucial decisions are going to be made on the subject of the day, Brexit, will be Irish Times Foreign Affairs correspondent Ruan McCormick, political editor Pat Lee, and Lucinda Creighton, the CEO of Vulcan Consulting, and former Minister of State for European Affairs and also former leader of Renewa. If you'd like to come along, uh, go to IIEA.com and click on the upcoming events tab to register. Now, enough of that for today's podcast. We were joined by The Guardian's Brexit correspondent, Lisa O'Carroll, and also by Pat Leahy and by Fia Kelly from our political staff. And uh, there was, of course, only one item on the agenda. Well, unless you count regulatory divergence, regulatory alignment, very long lunches in Brussels and a whole bunch of other things as separate items items. Yes, it was Brexit. Lisa, you're very welcome to the podcast. You have the uh, onerous task of interpreting what the hell is going on with Brexit to the many readers of The Guardian in the UK and around the world. And indeed, there are some of them uh, in Ireland as well. We might as well get right up to speed on what's been happening this morning and Tuesday, because you've been watching David Davis, who's had an interesting 24 hours, uh, um, talking... uh, about this, what seemed to be secret documents for a while, which have finally been revealed to the UK Parliament. What are those documents? Yes, they were um, what were called impact assessment documents, um, which were purported to um, assess the impact on various sectors, from aviation to agriculture to car manufacturing to Northern Ireland to data to pharma, etc. Um, and he's referred to them once or twice. He referred to 50 papers. He referred to 100 papers. And he came under pressure a couple of weeks back when the Brexit Select Committee, um, which is a pretty strong um, select committee and has been on the Brexit case since last July or August, um, and chaired by the Labour MP Hilary Benn. Um, and, you know, the parliament parliamentarians have to um, answer, have to appear before these committees and have to provide the information. And we refuse to. So the, um, uh, around the House of Commons ensued, what are you hiding? Um, this is one of the most historic... Um, junctures, uh, or sorry, a historic uh, juncture in Britain's history, and um, this is extremely important, significant. Show them to us. So, under pressure, they decided to put redacted versions in the House of Commons, um, and uh, they were they were um, produced this week and last night. Various members from the Select Committee were allowed to go in one by one and go through these. I think there were two lever arch files. And on Twitter last night, it was just fascinating, the MPs coming out and saying, this is nothing. Um, what was all this fuss about? We've been sold a pop. It's just press releases. Um, and this morning, uh, Dave Davis is before that select committee again. And he's basically said that, that they haven't actually done impact assessments. And he's trying to argue something very semantic, which is that an impact assessment, um, you know, you're wrong to think that... Um, you can get forecasts on what the impact of Brexit is going to be on the car manufacturing industry, for example. That is why it's not an impact. So he's he's talking semantics and he's trying to wriggle out of this. Um, 
I, so I mean, it's hard to understand what can we, why. What can, we, what can we learn from that? I mean, given, first well, of all, that there was an attempt to, to conceal these documents. Yeah, so he should have just handed nothing. over those and shown, I suppose, an, a bit of an embarrassment that they hadn't actually done any, any detailed analysis of what the impact would be on the car, car manufacturing industry, on the financial services or, or, or agriculture. Correct me if but, I'm wrong, but didn't David Davis point to the existence of all these impact assessments as evidence that the British government was mm. preparing for Brexit when he was charged previously that the British government wasn't preparing sufficiently for Brexit, he point, uh, Brexit, he pointed to the existence of these documents as evidence. That's right, yeah. Is yeah, he yeah. a bit just a bit of a spoofer? Um, I'm sure some people would agree with you on that. He's confident and he is affable and he's he's got a you know he he puts a veneer on the whole on the whole team, doesn't he? Um, he goes out to Brussels. He's always uh, very smiley when he appears on the platform with Barnier. But I think over the last week, what we've seen is, especially with what happened on Monday, that either the British government is playing. You know, do you remember the beginning? Theresa May's big line was. We are going to hold our cards close to our chest because we we don't want to give away anything of our negotiating tactics. So we've had since June, um, from from the referendum to January when she made the speech to Lancaster House, we had nothing. Then we had some revelations in the big Lancaster Lancaster House speech, and then between January and September, October, there was nothing. We had the Florence speech, and then we have this uh, concession on the divorce settlement. We have concessions on the e-citizens, well, I, I, I think the e-citizens was just, it was a joke, they should have just rolled over and said, yes, we will carry on with the status quo. It wasn't really a negotiation to be had, it was a fake negotiation, um, apart from the, the, the involvement of the European Court of Justice, which is a red line for them. And then on the Irish deal, they were conceding on Monday. So, I mean, they're either playing three dummy runs, or they, they I, mean, I mean, it's really hard to understand what kind of game they're playing. And and what? how do we end the, up in a situation, I mean, Pat, politely refer to it as spoofing uh, where I'd say bullshit on this podcast so I will his his um, statement to the commons yesterday we'll all be saying it the yeah. whole the whole yeah you're allowed to say it um, the whole issue of, of regulatory alignment all of a sudden out of the blue uh, he stood up in the house of commons he said that, that this arrangement uh, well, could and should apply well, to the whole of the well, UK well you could ask did they did they want um, this collapse of the talks on Monday I mean it might be a sign you're ascribing too much cleverness like poker playing to the British negotiating team but did they want the DUP to hold that press conference to flounce out of the deal and then be seen to have a have a win and allow because you know on Friday on, on, on Monday night Robert Peston who's the political editor of ITV and Mark Irvin on, on Newsnight both said the same thing that either that it's not about now getting the DUP on board it's about Theresa May going she's face down her Brexiteers Michael Gove and Johnson over the divorce bill she's got that over that was the single biggest thing the Irish thing wasn't supposed to be a, a roadblock. So they were both saying that her choice now is to go into the cabinet meeting on Tuesday morning and say, sorry, guys, it's not about the DUP. It's about regulatory alignment across the UK. You either like this or you can resign and go forward. There were others, including our political editor, said, yes, that that may be part of the Tory thinking, um, that you, you know where they want to go in the final in, in the final uh, uh, the game is to have regulatory alignment they want the closest possible deal a, a, and a soft Brexit essentially and a soft Brexit and that Theresa, Theresa May is an, in fact Remainer's best friend mm. um, but that she didn't want to have that argument now she didn't want to have it on Tuesday morning and I wonder how convincing they, is that sorry, sorry for you I mean well, for one thing I noticed that the, the parts of the British press that are closely aligned to the Conservative Party there's a lot of 
articles in this morning in The Telegraph and The Sun and various other places about how Boris Johnson and Gove and Rees-Mogg and the rest of them are kicking up blue murder now about this. Well, I think, I mean, Boris Johnson is a bit of a spent force, isn't he, no matter what he says. You know, he, he cocked up um, over the, you know, the remarks about Libya, then he cocked up with his um, speech in um, the Tory party conference. And I think you've seen she, you know, she was given the ultimatum, sack him or sack herself. Mm-hmm. And she kept him on and she's survived. I think, I think it's, it's very interesting she's survived this far and I think she'll survive it a lot longer than people people imagine. And just before I bring in Fiuk then, could I ask you just one last question about Davis? Because he seems to me in a way to be the, the key figure or the most interesting figure in this, because he is one of the three Brexiteers who were brought in to run this process under Theresa May. And he seems to be articulating or moving, perhaps as a result of his experience of being in that job over the last several months, moving to a softer a softer position. Oh, I don't know if you can, I, I mean, I don't know if you can read that from what he's saying. Um oh, I mean, he was, she She has, some people think she has weakened him. You know, she's taken his key um, person, Ollie Robbins, who's the key negotiator for, um, on the British side, um, given him a role in her cabinet corridor, um, took his team with him. Um, and a lot of people have actually actually said that the Brexit um, department, the Brexit department that he runs and the trade department that Liam Fox runs are non-departments, mm. don't have any power. I think he's a very, very good front man. Um, maybe very, very is a bit too strong. But he's a good front man. It was interesting that Robert Preston's blog, I think on Tuesday of this week as well, suggested that number 10 had entirely taken over yeah. the operation at this stage of the game, that Davis was effectively shut out. I think he even suggested that while Arlene Foster and the DUP were complaining, they hadn't seen the final text over the weekend. There was some briefing that Davis hadn't seen the final text until Monday morning either. That it was being so controlled by number 10. It was such a contro- takeover by number 10. The interesting thing I find about yesterday is this talk of regulatory alignment and the difference between what the Irish government believe this is, what the DUP want this to be, and what the British government believe it is. The Irish government say it's the same thing as no regulatory divergence. The DUP seem to believe that this will apply, and I think that's the, what Davis as well suggested, this would apply in a certain specific number of areas. That the DUP say that what was agreed was far too ambiguous for their liking. I that don't could know apply to everything. That could to apply, to, yeah, and they they seem to say, well, we want an agriculture, we wanted an energy, but like I don't think that's going to fly with the Irish government that you can tie it down to such narrow parameters, and that's I think is going to be interesting over the next few days to see exactly what class of ambiguity they get away with on this regulatory you, alignment. You, well, you've got a question: What does regulatory um, alignment mean? Mm. It, it has no. Does it have any legal weight? I don't. No, think it doesn't it does. have any like legal it weight. Means and, and it was a political it means fudge. And it means nothing. It, it, it was a political fudge that meant different things to the Irish and British government. And now you have DUP in the middle saying, "Well, we actually want to nail down what we wanted or believe it to mean." It behoves me now, Pat, to bring in the wise words of our European editor uh, Patrick Smith All right. in, 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 <laughs> in, in in this morning's newspaper. And he says, and this is in stark contrast, obviously, to what Leo Varadkar said on Monday. I quote: "The difference between promising regulatory alignment and avoiding re- regulatory divergence—it's not easy, is it?—is everything, night and day." So he says there's a huge difference between them. I, to me. Uh, as as to Lisa, uh, it, they, it seems to me to be very woolly words. Really. Well, mm. I, I suppose the fact that there is a viable argument about the meaning of the terms tends to suggest that the ambiguity is, deli- is deliberate mm. 
I mean, if you wanted to spell out exactly what you meant, you wouldn't be using, uh, you would be using plainer language that was understood. Dean Bradcar point out that it was the British officials that went for alignment. They had mm. the choice of alignment or divergence. Because he said they were to them, it sounded, because to them, it sounded, it sounded softer, I suppose. Um, what is uh, the only... To, now, that's not the view sure. of the, that's not the view of the Irish government. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm told that's not the view of the commission either, that moving to full alignment is a phrase that is used in accession treaties, meaning that uh, the laws of the accession country are brought into... Over a, over a multi-year over process. Over a period of time so are so brought into yeah. harmony with the uh, uh, with, with EU regulations. But as I say, I think that, you know the fact that there is a discussion about this suggests, and of course... The use of such creative ambiguity in these sort of negotiations is employed precisely because it can mean mm. different things to different people. And a final agreed meaning of it is something that you don't have to fix on until after the negotiations are concluded and the agreement is set But we know the DUP wanting to fix on something on it now, which is the real difficulty. Yes, because... I think at the heart of this is the DUP's suspicion and great fear, which has always been the great fear of unionists. Not that they are afraid of Dublin's dastardly designs, but that they fear betrayal by, by the, London. By the and yeah. that, yeah. I think, is what is at the heart but of But equally this. also on the Dublin side, is this... The wording not intended to achieve two objectives, which have always been the objectives of the of the, of the Dublin government. Uh, number one, to minimise or, if possible, eliminate any additional border controls or, or obstacles to movement and trade on the island of Ireland. But number two, and just as important, even though you don't hear quite as much about it, to achieve uh, as as little disruption as possible in whatever the overall outcome is uh, and its impact on east-west trade. Mm. Yes, so. yeah, they're they're twin objectives, but of course. You know the trading relationship, as we know, isn't going to be um, uh, isn't going to be fully realised until the second phase of the negotiations. No, Why Dublin if, was but, so? But if you're in Ivy House, you would you would you would like the look of David Davis's speech to the House of Commons yesterday. Oh, you would, mm, because yeah. not alone does it give you objective one, which is no hard border, but it gives you exactly. it opens up mm, the possibility mm. of objective two, which is a minimum of barriers to east uh, to east west trade. Union, union and single market. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The yeah. interesting thing I found about But if you remain in the customs union in the single market, then you give up control over, mm. uh, yeah, you give over freedom you name, of movement. You name it something so, differently. What was it? The customs partnership was what the lingo was during yes. the summer rather than a customs union. So you can name and you split you the Tory party. You split, but, Inevitably. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the Tory party is going to split. split it's anyway. going to be, it has been divided on this forever and will continue to be like, divided. To you know, roll down, for, if, if, if Brexit goes ahead, mm. roll on 30, 40 years, there will be arguments about returning to Europe. Mm. The, the interesting thing that Lisa said earlier on is that, you know, the sense that this fight was always going to be had within the Tory party and just that it's being had probably now in the next week or two over Ireland is a, it's a curious thing. They've put this off for far too long and now they have to have this row and it is going to split on them. The other because hand, on the other hand, didn't Barnier say September, I think it's September, and Sabine in briefings following that said that they do not want Northern Ireland to be used as a proxy mm. and they dismissed the, yeah, it was August when Britain made its proposal about the border about you know the uh, trader deals and the hmm. exemptions for small businesses crossing the border, and um, the European Commission were very quick to I think to that, was, that and say we're not ha- allowing you to use Northern Ireland as a proxy I, for the wider deal. I think that was a that, I think that was a reason for the Irish obsession with this backstop they're calling and of having 
a commitment to regulatory alignment, even in the event of a no-deal scenario. They had this fear that that would be used in that way, it'd be used as a proxy by the British to you know, get their own way in a European-wide deal. But the interesting thing I thought with Leo Varadkar said at all yesterday, that there were three elements to the wording that was agreed. And one of them was giving the Brexiteers and the DUP scope to further expand their argument of, you know, we can solve this by high-tech arrangements. And, you know, so he was kind of saying, look, there are three positions here. One, I think, which has been lost sight of is that the key one is that the British believe that this can be solved in the overall deal, which is an indication of where they see it going anyway. And the third is our one that, like, you know, in the event that this will fall apart, there will be regulatory alignment. And the third was, you know, we're not ruling out the fact that we think that you, that you guys believe there is some sort of technology. But, but the British have to put meat but in those But you, you guys have more time now on top of the time you've already had to come up with it. Mm. That was an interesting. But the declaration of principle is still there. So if all else fails, yeah. then you go back to a, a, a cast iron commitment, mm. what Leo was referring to but as I a do. cast iron commitment that mm. there would be that whatever solution they came up with, it could not lead to But I do board. wonder about this, Lisa. I mean, reading reports about what EU officials think about the current state of the British government and what the Irish government thinks about the current state of the British government. We're dancing on the heads of pins here over an agreement which, uh, can we have any faith at all that what the political dispensation will be in the UK in six months or 12 months' time in terms of actually delivering. Or next week. Or indeed next well, week. Well, I mean, they yeah. haven't got much time. They've got to get a deal. They've got to get the meat on the bones by March, April, don't they? Mm. Because the deal, the deal has to roll on to a complete deal by September, October in order for the various states to ratify it, which will take six months. So we're not talking about April next year. Which, can, which can't happen. No. So which can't no. happen. It's completely unfeasible, isn't mm. it? Pat? A full deal by... full deal by, you know, a full deal on by trade next, by, by, next by, by next autumn, essentially. Yeah. You'd need a skeleton yeah. on the transition. You need, need, no, you need, need an agreement on the transition to give you the leeway. To whatever number Which of years is not going to be, be easy deal. either because speaking to people in our government in recent days, they said that a key concern of the European Union is that Brexit kicks in in March 2019, correct? Um, and, you know, the European elections are due in spring 2019 and there is an acute concern in Berlin and Paris in particular, that they don't want to see Nigel Farage and Jacob Rees-Mogg dancing in Parliament Square declaring that Britain is now free with absolutely no consequences until 2021 or thereafter. So there is going to be Mm. punishment within that transition period, probably around passporting and financial services. So Lisa's right, it's not going to be a cakewalk after March or April. There's going to be some hard bargaining to be done on the transition alone, let alone what the deal that follows it. Lisa, I've got to ask you, as an Irish woman working in London with the role of Brexit correspondent, albeit for a newspaper which feeds the North London artisanal kale-eating Ramona part of the the British electorate. (laughs) Kindred spirits (laughs) to ourselves. (laughs) Indeed, indeed, indeed. Close, 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 very very close. Um, What's it been like watching the way in which the laser beam of British media attention has swivelled around. Uh, I, I was gonna, yeah, like Sauron's red eye and the Lord of the Rings. This morning. <laughs> <laughs> to this, to this, this small little country of ours, which well, they really seem to know very little about. It's, it's it become is, apparent. It has been fascinating. Well, do you remember when they, you know, after the election, when uh, uh, May needed the DUP for her mm. her um, uh, confidence and supply arrangement and everybody's going who's the DUP including people <laughs> in the Guardian mm. um, because you forget you know we're of an age or at least I'm of an age where you remember what was going on in Northern Ireland Me and too. there are plenty of people millennials who have no it hasn't been on the front page that's like Fiat for news. example he's one of them um, <laughs> and if you're British it's not it, yeah <laughs> It's, it's, you know, it's not in the national conversation at all. People mm. the, the caricature still holds if you look at all the cartoons and 
recent weeks of, you know, this caricature of Arlene Foster with the sash and the hat and May in her hand and all that time. It's really, really crude. Like the, the understanding is not there, you know. I mean, we we watch, I mean, we were laughing about this in this podcast, but I'm interested to know what you think of it. These kind of Ian Duncan Smith pontificating about the impact of the Irish presidential election on how this is going to play out. And people just listen to him, you know, because I suppose he's a former leader of the Conservative Party, so he should be speaking not with some authority. Success, not a very successful a very, one, indeed. very unsuccessful one, yeah. yeah, yeah. So what, what's all that like? Do you think, is is there any danger at all of, some people have remarked that this has been the most major setback in Anglo-Irish relations in possibly in decades after, after a long period of sunshine and light. Is there any prospect at all that it sets back the relationship in a really negative well, way? I really think you've got to, I, th- I think that's an... That's overstating it, really overstating it. Okay. You've got to remember people were killed. I mean, I, mm. I did a piece on the border about three weeks ago and I spent a week going around various pe- talking to people and you just ask, ask them about the customs and you know, met this guy who had been shot and his uh, garage had been firebombed and he was in you know the UDR and he was a target, not because he was Protestant, but because he was supporting the British um, army. Um, and you just forget, you know, it's all very well for us in Dublin or in London, talking about Northern Ireland, but your lives aren't impacted by it. And I think sure. that is the difference now. Back then, people, there was violence, and people still um, talk about uh, the lack of cohesion in communities. Like, I met one woman who's involved in um, an EU-funded project who said she goes over to Kesh, um, which is a couple of miles from Pettigo on the border between Donegal and Fermanagh, for her supermarket shopping. That's where they go, because uh, Pettigo is really a run-down place now, pretty bleak. And she won't go around July the 12th, she said, because people, because of all the, you know, the King Billy um, posters and the bunting and she said, it's just so in your face. And yet these are people who she might count as friends Mm. every other day of the week or the year. Um, So you forget that. So I think, uh, yes, Anglo-Irish relations are very strained, very strange, but I think they can be repaired. Um, I think I said, it's when I said on last week's podcast that um, David, the aforementioned David Davis Apparently said the senior people in our government in recent weeks, we know you're going to have to get a bit rough with us over the coming weeks. We're ready for mm-hmm. it, but we're not going to read too much into it. This is just the way negotiations go. So I think Lisa's right, it is exaggerated. Some class from exaggeration say, you know, they're at their worst in 30 years' time. It's a rough patch, but probably can be recovered. And Same I think time. The House has done a lot of work, hasn't it? Done preparing all the European leaders and has opened um, embassies and consuls in other parts of the world. It's done amazing groundwork um, you know to get Ireland up there as one of the top three issues in Brexit negotiations was, is, is a big achievement and to have at, at, you know up to now anyway to have the unity of 27 have Barney and Juncker right on uh, you know Ireland's back I think that's entirely true but on the question of, kind of Anglo-Irish relations I mean I can't remember going to a press conference with an Irish Taoiseach having him use the sort of language that Leo Varadkar was using about the British um, uh, the other day effectively uh, accusing the British of reneging reneging on uh, an what, agreement what and disappointed mm. yes and uh, and, and I, I think you know I mean, there's no question that it's night and day as to you know where relations were you know, 30 years ago when there was a campaign of violence going on in the north. Um, But at the same time, that was overcome by smart and farsighted and careful politics about, I mean, in in, in the past, the the Irish government and the British government have been at complete loggerheads in the past over issues in the peace process, decommissioning, policing and, and so forth. But they were very careful to keep 
those uh, keep those divisions behind closed doors. They didn't come out and talk about them in a way that the Irish government is now doing. And maybe that's a sign of progress and a or sign maybe of maturity, it's, I mean, or me- maybe it's a sign of carelessness. Well, it, it does lead to the question. I mean, I did ask the question last week was, as Leo was escaping from the frying pan and about to go into this particular fire that, you know, that that the events of the previous week around Francis Fitzgerald had uh, shed some unflattering light on his negotiating skills or his his judgment, you know, mm. at, at points of high stress and, and high pressure. And when we look at the way events played out on Monday with Simon Coveney perhaps jumping the gun a little bit early on Morning Ireland in terms of what he said, um, in the, the way that things played out on Monday morning, and then, as you say, his rather... By, by recent standards, intemperate remarks, really over actors, intemperate remarks at the, at the press conference. Did they play it as well as they could or should have? I don't think so. I think there's no question but that the Irish government, for understandable reasons, wanted to claim a political victory. And that was set up throughout Monday. And that's what Monday was going to be. Simon Coveney went on Morning Ireland saying that he expected to be able to deliver very good news later, went on the news at one. There was a press conference scheduled for 2.30. There's no question but that the political operation was about to present this as a great victory for the Irish government, which it would have been. Um, I think there is also no question that this probably riled the DUP uh, a little bit. And did it cause the breakdown? I don't think so. I think that would be going way too far. But did it help? It certainly didn't. Did it contribute to the DUP's hackles going up and the DUP then re-evaluating or, or evaluating in a very negative light what the British government had agreed? I think it probably did. And that's what I mean about when I talk about, you know, that the hallmark of British-Irish relations has been that they've been careful in public, uh, careful about the politics, careful about what they say. And I, I, I think on Monday, I don't think the Irish government was careful. And I think that is possibly for political, for domestic political reasons. They could have, he could have, I mean, they could have left it at uh, Morning Ireland and not done the lunchtime news. And mm. I was surprised that he did do the lunchtime news. Mm. Great story. We're going to have a deal in an hour. Positive statement for the nation. This is Coveney. That's what you said, yeah. Um, so and that is understandable, that, but in hindsight, mere, I'm not sure if it, it was wise. It does feed into a narrative of a, of, even of, a political, fact, of a political machine which is some, somewhat too interested in spin and not interested but even the mere in fact that achieving the cabinet substance. meeting. Right. Technically speaking, he didn't need the cabinet to, to, to mandate him to go off and sign a deal. He didn't really need it. Like, it, that was a bit more of show like and mm. even on Sunday when it looked like there wasn't going to be a deal they were going to proceed with this cabinet meeting which was you know okay he could have kept he, he he did it to keep the cabinet in the loop about what they were about to agree but he didn't need to do that he could do it he could have done it after there was no requirement on him to go my cabinet has mandated me to do the following that wasn't the case but I would disagree it's a fairly high stakes um um negotiating going on and, and it's all about moving from phase one to phase two but he didn't even um, ta- he, he gave them no a very decision. There was no decision. And he they didn't weren't even, even given the they text. They weren't even given the text. They were told mm. this is what's happening in rough terms. So it was a briefing. It was a briefing. Yes. In fact, they were actually hauled out of the cabinet meeting, both of them, to take a phone call with Juncker to be told this has been agreed now. Uh, so I think it all kind of fed into this, you know, carnival of the day and, you know, government buildings was set up for this big press conference with speakers and theatre. There's a bit of that all right, you know. 
I mean, I think it's important to emphasize that this is not the reason why no, 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 things no. Okay. fell no, no, apart. But in a situation, and it's not, you know, like it's, it's, you know, and maybe they were, maybe they are worried about the presidential election. But in a situation where the rise of the rise of Sinn Fein, but I don't think mm. that that was no, no. a decisive player. But did it color the mood? I think it probably but in a situation did. Well, where DUP you've got to go back to back to the question is why weren't the DUP squared? Mm. You know, as you talked yes. about long, careful, thoughtful. And that is the British. Con- yeah, consultation. They knew that the yeah. DUP and not Arlene Foster, they have justifiable, legitimate claims, um, and they have to be listened to. Um, it's a shame that Sinn Fein don't have a voice in Westminster um, at this uh, critical time. But you know, Arlene Foster rightly said our position has not changed, just as Leo says Ireland's position has not changed. And it was known that they would react. Everybody thinks of them as the bad loonies. Mm. Um, they had to be squared off, and they weren't. So why did that not happen? That is I mean, that seems you know a real statement of the bleeding obvious that they needed to, that mm. Theresa May needed. But to even do that even past point that, I, that it, it didn't materially affect. But in a situation where they're they've already expressed their annoyance and displeasure the way the Taoiseach and Simon Coveney have run the government in terms of not just Brexit policy, but how they've sought to re-establish the storm at the executive. So in a situation where their backs are already up, you know, the British government was, you know, it's appalling that they didn't have the DUP on side or boxed off before they went to Brussels, unless, as you say, it was a deliberate strategy. But, like, for the Irish government, not to have that at the back of their minds that, you know, these guys don't really like us anyway, so let's not give them any excuse to jump up and down. It's open to... And I mean, you've well. got to say that the you know the the, um, the language used by the DUP has been has been very provocative. Yeah, like well, that's the, the DUP, two. isn't it? I mean, all the actions of the DUP that we've seen over the last three days, whatever you may may want to say about them, they are not unfamiliar to any of us who are mm. familiar with the actions of the DUP over the last. I thought 20 Arlene years. Foster was very. I thought she was very good in the Tommy Gorman interview. That she was calm and spoke. Um, spoke very reasonably um, about her position compared to Nigel Dodds, you know, the attack dog that she had sent out earlier in the afternoon. Sure, but there's always been a bit of that. Had you you had Edwin Poots tweeting about Little Leo, like as if it was a, a, a Trumpism, you know, Little Leo says this, we won't back down no matter what Little Leo Let, says. Let's, let's just ask, is there any chance of this being resolved before well, the Arlene, summit on the 15th? As we, as we were on air, Arlene is speaking to Theresa May, just oh. got it. An alert. Okay, well, that's a movement because she was sort of, she was refusing to, essentially, wasn't she? She wasn't even taking a phone call from her yesterday. Is that right, Pat? Yeah. Well, that's so it was so it was reported. It seems mm. extraordinary. That yeah, the quote was, you know, the, the DUP source was telling, I think it's yourselves, Lisa, was it, you know, that, uh, you know, we don't see that enough progress is made for Arlene that's to get involved at this stage with mm. the Prime Minister. It was actually extraordinary. Well, yeah, I mean, very similar actually, tactics to, well, when the confidence and supply or however it's characterised agreement was being set up, wasn't it? That there was this presumption that the DUP were going to roll over and they just sat in Belfast for three days and said, don't take us for granted. Yeah. You know? yeah. And as Tommy Gorman said, they are in their comfort zone. This is what they like. Yeah. And he, I mean, extraordinary, yesterday he said um, on RT that he put the chance of a deal. Less five than five. Five there really? percent. There was a, there was a kind of view in our, in our government desk that, you know, they were preparing for it to rumble beyond the 14th and the 15th, that, you know, okay, it might go into the new year. But mm. like they were, they were starting to talk down December the fourteenth and the fifteenth as a deadline. So, if that were not the deadline, we're kind of used to this stuff with these, you know, endless crises in Northern Ireland and talks that go on always past deadlines. You know, deadlines are there to be ignored. I don't know how that plays in Brussels, though. Does it? Does it play in the same way in Brussels? 
I think you know it's it's not unheard for for European Union deadlines to slip and sure, you know for them yeah, to like you know it's not unheard I mean, like this would be I mean the, the original deadline was back in October yeah, we're yeah. on the second deadline yeah. for this so like, you know, it's, uh, you know it's, they're fairly loose can, like you know it's not like if you so can miss just, one deadline as as I always say to the news desk here if you can miss one deadline surely you can miss uh, another <laughs> yeah. but um but uh, but at the point that Lisa makes earlier about that the real deadline the real immovable deadline is. 2019, the end of March 2019, and all the stuff that has to take place and all the agreement that has to be reached on, you know, diverse and complex issues, that takes time before. And as we've seen with this stuff, Mm. and the stuff to come is even more complex, it takes time. And I I think the longer this phase goes on, and the, the slipping of this deadline next week, if that is what has happened, has a knock-on effect. Has a knock-on effect and makes it more difficult. Does, uh, more, makes it more difficult to reach the real Brexit. Does deadline. it have a knock-on effect in British politics as well? Because we saw Ian Duncan Smith last night. You know, they're not serious. So let's just start. You know, tell them we're going to walk away. So does Theresa May them come under pressure if the longer this drags on, just to walk away? And there's that kind of nobody wants no deal. Mm. Nobody wants no deal. Apart from those thirty MPs, of course. Sorry, mm. but they'll always be there. Come mm. what may. Um, I think the interesting question will be if they don't have a deal, can March the 29th be moved? And I would say yes, it can, because Article 50 has never been tested. And I think, I don't think Europe really wants Britain to be out of there with no deal. Yes, there, there, there has to be an element of, you know, con- there has to be an element of punishment, as you put mm. it, consequences. They mm. can't be seen to have had a better mm. deal outside or of the EU than in. They can't have a better transition than I mean outside the EU. Yeah. So you um, get a deferral of some sort. I, I, they could I pause. Think, yes, they, they they, could, there's yeah. been there's been some work done on this that they that the British could ask for Article 50 to be paused. That would require unanimous agreement among the 27, but that could possibly be forthcoming. Could be paused for a year, for two years. But I think that depends on the domestic poli- British political situation in uh, in a year's time into the spring of 2019. Mm-hmm. Whether it depends election, on the, whether there's another referendum. And given. You know, given the flimsy authority of Theresa May at the moment, you would have to say that it is a, a it would be a large mm. gamble to say that the domestic political situation in Britain now, uh, it, or in, at that stage, mm. is, resembles the one and now. Like we, yeah. and, and even yesterday, there was the Labour Party seems to change their position, although they fudged it later on on single market and customs union in the, that, that exchange between Keir Starmer and yeah. David Davis. Yeah. Now. Labour Party in Ireland um, are kind of in touch with their UK cousins and, you know, speaking to some of the Labour Party yesterday said, yeah, they have been told that UK Labour are definitively moving towards remaining in single market and customs union. And I said, you know, well, they said that in the Florida House of Commons today, but they've wrote back and they're told, no, they're not ready to actually confirm it yet. So it, there are many people in Dublin who would actually prefer at this stage to have Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister rather than Theresa May for the exact reason if they have a clear defined policy of single market customs union that would suit us thanks very much and also there may be people in uh, there may be people in Brussels and around Europe which are coming uh, who are coming to that conclusion as well and if that is the case then you might see a slowing down of the negotiations next year with the explicit intention or the implicit intention rather of putting pressure on, uh, on have you got your 2019 holidays booked yet Lisa <laughs> <laughs> I've got it 
2018 is difficult enough. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, thanks very much for coming in today. It was great to have you in. You're a former formerly of this parish, so it's great to see you in here again. Thanks also to Pat and to Fiek for joining us. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. And you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. And please take a moment, if you can, to share the show with your friends because we're trying to get it out to a wider audience. Also, we do really value your feedback and your suggestions. And you can always mail them directly to me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can very easily find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much for listening. 